O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's Psalm 131, which along with Psalm 132, the Psalms appointed for today, Thursday, November the 25th, 2021. Happy Thanksgiving to all who are listening to Faith Seeking Understanding today. I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me. We're continuing our look at prophecy today with uh, in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Also, um, we're in 1 Peter, second chapter, verses 11 to 25, and in Matthew's Gospel, the 20th chapter, the first 16 verses. So, <clears throat> Zephaniah begins with, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. So it's, it's a very simple kind of beginning to this. It's, it's, you, we've got a problem. The problem is, is that the, the leaders, the people, don't look to the Lord, even though he is their God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are rav- evening wolves. They leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust know no shame. That, you know, we used to be that country, right? I mean, uh, America was, we were never the, the New Jerusalem, but but we were to be a city set on a hill. And the, the city set on the hill had a purpose, and the purpose was to glorify the Lord. And so people came here for, for freedom purposes. They came here because they were not able to practice their religion in England, a lot of them. And, and it's because that there was no dissent from Anglicanism that was allowed. So the Methodists, the Baptists, the other nonconformists came to the United States because here they would have freedom. And ultimately, that's what we declared, that this was the land of the free. And so the problem comes after a period of time, we lose the thread. And that's what's happened in much of American Christianity today is we've lost the thread. We've lost the important thing. And we have blessed things that we ought not bless uh, and cursed things we ought not curse. And so the, the Lord remains the same continuing to do what he has done. But, but the problem has become the government and the church, as it were, the synagogue, the temple, had been profaned. It had been, they had lost the thread. They had um, come to make it nothing more than sort of a civil religion that didn't any longer have contact or connection with the God of the temple itself. <clears throat> We're assured that the Lord remains the same, righteous when, in fact, there's no righteousness anywhere else around, justice when there is no other justice. And this is the Lord speaking now. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. That your dwe- then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. 
but all the more they were eager to make their deeds corrupt. In spite of the warning, in spite of all the signs around them, they didn't turn from their own wickedness. They didn't turn back to the Lord and follow him. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So it's the Lord's judgment on the world. And the judgment is harshest, beginning at the house of the Lord, as we know. And the reason that it's harshest and begins there is because it, the intention of God choosing a people, whether that be Israel or whether that be the church today, the purpose is to make us a peculiar people, a royal priesthood. A holy nation and so that that in our case it's not the nation it's the church and so the church is to shine forth his glory in the world and, and when the church no longer believes in that no longer proclaims the excellencies of, of the father the son and the holy spirit no longer proclaims the word of god then God has to judge it most harshly and first because it failed because it was in covenant with him and failed to keep that covenant in order that the nations would know him. He says, For at that time I'll change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. This change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech has to do with the reversal of the curse at Babel. Babel. Yeah, in uh, Genesis 11, that, that the speech of the peoples will be changed to a pure speech. That way, all of them, they call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. These are all the nations, because he said he's going to gather the nations. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame, because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I'll remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall they be found in their mouth any deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. This, that last is an image of sheep, as God's sheep, that he will be the good shepherd. They will graze and lie down, and none will make them afraid. It's, it's got to do with that image from the 23rd Psalm. And so he says there will come a time when that will be true, when you'll see that peaceable kingdom established in such a way that, that you will come to love me and to know me in truth. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is going to tell us a parable here, and it's a familiar parable to, to those who have... Um, been in the kingdom long for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to his laborers to hire laborers for the vineyard after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day he sent them into his vineyard and a denarius a day is the wage that was typical for a daily worker and going out about the third hour so several hours later he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and he said to them you go to the vineyard too and whatever's right i'll give you so they went Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, so there's only an hour left. 
he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one's hired us. He said to them, go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the first up to the last. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. So that probably is raising the expectation for everybody who came before them, right? Because if that person worked an hour and got paid a, a denarius, then certainly I should make the same. make more of me. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. I've known people (laughs) who were disappointed, um, upset, thought God was unjust because other people get in at the last moment, you know, sort of deathbed conversion kind of a thing. And it's always just fascinated me. To hear such things, because my first response is, is that do you think you deserve to be in? You know, that's the thing is, is that, that do you understand the nature of grace? It's, it's a sheer grace that that we're in at all. But the other thing that it misses in my mind is the joy of living with him and for him. And the problem I think most people have is they don't see that as a joy. They see it as a restricted sort of life. You know, it's just sort of white-knuckle Christianity that says, um, you know, th- what what's going on over there looks like fun, and I would rather be doing that, but because I'm a good Christian, I'm not going to do that. And, and that doesn't—so they've never really accepted the goodness of God, because if, if you think God is not good, if, he, if you think he's keeping you from some sort of pleasure— by restricting it, then then you're committing the sin in the garden all over again. That that those things that have been prohibited to us, um, if we accept those things, those restrictions, um, then then what we should do is accept them as coming from a good and loving Father who knows what's best for us and wants to protect us from harm. And instead, we. we we come to this weird conclusion that, that he's a very restrictive and, and mean sort of God. We, we don't have a good sense of what grace it is that we ourselves are in the kingdom when, whenever we resent others getting in at, at the last minute, having lived a life of debauchery or whatever it is that we think they've done. But I, don't, I, and I just never have understood that. It, it's always a joy to me when, when somebody comes to the Lord no matter when they come to the Lord. And it doesn't take anything away from me. I, the, you know, the, the deal is that I get eternal life, but I get the Holy Spirit now. And I get to live and walk with Him now. I get insight into His Word. I know more and more about the God of the universe, the one who created all things. Why you would see somebody else as having a, quote, better life than you and, and enjoying all these other things when you've misunderstood the bargain of the cross, and you've misunderstood the love and the grace of the cross. 
you, you've somehow come to the conclusion that it's something that you've done. And, and I'm just delighted that I'm in the kingdom at all. In the First Peter passage, he begins to say, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, he's not speaking to a, a diaspora community necessarily here. What he's talking about is, is the way we live in this life. We recognize that this is not ultimately our home. That, it, that it's in the kingdom. We're, we're looking for the coming of the kingdom, praying for the coming of the kingdom. Um, so he calls us sojourners and exiles. He says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We, we, we don't even think about that anymore. No, if, if there's a passion there, then it must be something that the Holy Spirit has put into your heart. So that desire must be of God because it's not harmful, it's loving, it's whatever. It's Peter's warning us against that very idea about the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. So we're called to live holy lives, lives that, that display his glory, lives that display that, that we serve a different king that we, we are looking for another kingdom. He says, Be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governor, sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So he says we're called to accept the authority that's over us because it wouldn't be there if it weren't for God allowing those rulers to be over us. It does certainly raises some ethical dilemmas. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, in Cost of Discipleship, spoke about this very issue and then later decided to join the plot to kill Hitler. And so there's a, he had to sort of break his own conscience when it was confronted with evil. When he saw that, the, that what was the power and the authority was evil and what it was doing uh, to other people, in Germany, then then he decided to rise up and join the plot to kill him along with his brother-in-law. It didn't work, and he ended up in prison um, and died, in fact, the day before that prison, particular prison, was um, set free. But ultimately, we know that God won. We know that, that, that Hitler was brought down and brought low, and God used um, armies to accomplish that very purpose. It's important that we that we submit ourselves to authority, but that we don't submit ourselves to evil. Those are two different things. So if, if, you're, there's, if an evil requirement is made, then it's your duty to oppose it. It's a, your duty as a Christian to say no to that and not participate with evil. But otherwise, he says, submit to the authorities. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So there's a difference between our relationship to the emperor and our relationship to God. And our, our relationship to God is, is to be characterized by fear, which is um, love. It's all. It's respect. It's all those kinds of things. And then our, our duty towards the emperor is the same as our duty towards other people. And that's to honor those people and to, to respect those people. <clears throat> But we're not to fear the emperor. We're to fear God alone. It goes on to say, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. So, so your relationship vis-a-vis -vis your employer 
it should be one of reverence, one of um, respect for that person by virtue, I guess, of that positional authority they have over you. And so we're, we're but again, we're, we're, and that's no matter who it is, and we're to respect those people. The first boss that I ever had when I worked at a bank treated me like dirt. Um, treated me like I was the biggest idiot that he ever met in his life. Later, after I left, he had uh, a guy call me who had taken my place and said, uh, hey, um, this our boss wants us to go to lunch with you. I said, who is us? He said, me and the other guy he hired to replace you. <laughs> so I went to lunch with these two guys largely to say I have no earthly idea why he would have done that. And said, well, he thinks you're like the greatest thing since sliced bread. And we're incapable of actually doing the job uh, to your standard. I said, "Well, he treated me like an idiot when I was there. That's the reason I'm not there anymore." So it's, but, but I, I never spoke against him, and I never had a, a personal problem with him. I accepted the fact that he was in authority over me, and then I got out from underneath that authority, though. He says, "For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if, when you sin or beaten for it, you endure?" But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to those who have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And so, so we know what it looks like to be obedient and to suffer unjustly because of the cross. He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He, he played the long game. He trusted the Father in all things. Just right from the beginning of his ministry, when he's tempted by Satan to, to turn stones into bread when he's hungry, and his response is, is that, um, that one lives only by the Word of God, not by bread. And so he refused, even in that instance, to take matters into his own hands, he, he waited for the Father to act and to provide, and he did. Then he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And so that last image, again, goes in with that um, Zephaniah passage, that the, the great good shepherd and that he is the Lord. And so if we want to know what it means to be under his leadership, then we should be intimately familiar with the 23rd Psalm, and that should bring delight and balm and healing to our souls in all things, that we would submit ourselves to his lordship entirely.